0: Well, Happy New Year. Please turn with me to First Thessalonians chapter 1. I'd like to read for you verses 1-10, through 10, the whole chapter of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Follow along as I read. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, And labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, And how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. This is the day of the year. When we hear a lot about making changes, we hear about New Year's resolutions. How many of you have actually made a New Year's resolution this year? Uh-huh. See, I didn't, didn't think so. I so, not think so. so. I didn't think so. Think so. so I, didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't think so. so. This is the day of the year when we hear a lot about making changes. We hear about New Year's resolutions. How many of you have actually made a New Year's resolution this year? Uh-huh. See, I didn't think so. This is the day of the year when we hear a lot about making changes. We hear about New Year's resolutions. How many of you have actually made a New Year's resolution this year? Uh-huh. See, I didn't think so. Didn't think so. Think so. Duh. Duh. See, I didn't think so. Duh. Duh. Flat. Well, you might think that our resolutions fall flat because we're too ambitious. You know, that we decide to do things that are impossible to do. That you're aiming too high, that you're trying to do things you just can't pull off. But that's not why our New Year's resolutions always fall flat. It's not that we're aiming too high, it's that we're not aiming deep enough. And the reason that we never aim deep enough with our resolutions is is that we have a shallow understanding of our sin, of things we don't do. You know the caricature of, of, uh, of evangelical Christians, conservative Christians. I don't cuss. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't wear short skirts. You know I don't wear short skirts. I don't sleep around. You know, I don't do these things. Therefore, I'm Okay. And you'll say to me, "No, that's that's not how I think of the Christian life." You know, we are we're fairly uh, sophisticated in our Christian understanding here, and we don't just think of the Christian life as a list of do's and don'ts. Well, really, are you sure? Many times, your face says something different. You know, you you look nice when you come to church. You're well dressed. You're clean. You have it together, you have the lingo, you're initiated, you have the cues, you know what to talk about, what not to talk about, your kids are nice and well-behaved, you have them in Christian school or you homeschool them, your life is ordered and outwardly acceptable and upright. But look at your face. You're dying inside, some of you. You're filled with discontentment. You're filled with envy. You're filled with self-righteousness. You're, you're eaten up with worry and fear. You're proud. You're in despair. Or just look what happens behind your front door at night. Look what happens behind my front door at night. You're angry with one another at home. You're bitter towards your husband. You're cold towards your wife. You're indifferent to the people who are closest to you. Your kids resent you. Your roommate is a bother to you. You just put up with them. You're a gossip. You're a backbiter. You're filled with lust. Look at what happens when no one is looking. Your computer is filled with pornography. You spend your days envying those who are rich, daydreaming about being rich and famous and powerful. You plot revenge in your hearts against your enemies. You indulge yourself in private, secret, hidden ways. And you have no power against any of these things. But you're nice. And you're clean. And you're you're respectable. And it's all a sham. Why is that? It's because we have a shallow understanding of our sin. And a shallow understanding of sin will always lead to a shallow reality of holiness. And you know something else. If your understanding of sin is not deep enough, then your understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ won't be deep enough either. Because a shallow problem only needs a shallow solution. If your problem is a light surface shallow problem, then it only takes a, a, a light surface shallow solution. But is our problem light and shallow and on the surface? Is the root of all of our conflict and strife and worry and lust and bad choices just that we have wrong ideas in our heads and bad habits? Is that as deep as the problem goes? Is our problem just one of inadequate education and lack of discipline? That's what we hear, isn't it? That's what we hear from the gurus of our culture. We we hear from the psycholo- psychologists and the psychotherapists and the educators. They'll tell you that what you need is some new information in your head, or a new lifestyle, some new discipline, some new habits. Maybe you need a new diet. Maybe you need to have your colon cleansed. You know, whatever it is, they'll tell. They'll, they'll give you the secret. You need to read their books, adopt their methods of coping, and then you'll be all right. Because it is just a surface shallow problem. But all of that leaves you with a shallow remedy, doesn't it? How does the Bible present the essence of our problem as humans? We all know the answer to this. In general, the Bible tells us that our problem is that we're sinners. But what kind of sinners are we? What kind of sinner are you? If we could take the whole smorgasbord of sin... All of the stuff that you see, all the stuff you read about in the papers, you see on the news, you see as you drive down the street, you hear in your living room or your bedroom or your kitchen, the schoolyard, whatever it is, if you take that whole smorgasbord of sin and boil it down to one common root, what would that root be? Over and over again, the Bible traces all of our sin back to one source, ultimately, ultimately. It traces our sin back to its source in idolatry. All of our sin has its source in misplaced worship. Our problem is not superficial and lightened on the surface. It is heavy and radical as it, and deep as the unseen roots of an ancient oak tree that spread out beneath the surface and go very deep. The root of all of our problems is that we all have hearts that have turned away from God and turned to idols. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter one, many of you will be familiar with this passage. Romans one, he can say as he's unfolding the history of the human race, he can say in Romans chapter one, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. When Paul begins to talk about the rivers of wickedness that have flooded over, gushed over the face of the earth ever since... Man's fallen to sin. He traces their source back to the springs of idolatry, back to misplaced worship. And all of the things that you see, he goes on, he lists sins, outward sins that we see unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, hating of God, being insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, all of the things that you see in terms of specific sins in your life and in the world, all are traced back to their source. Misplaced worship. Idolatry. If you noticed in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 1 that I read to you, the Thessalonians problem had been idolatry. Paul says that these people had turned to God from idols. Now, in sophisticated, civilized 21st century America, we all know that those people back then, back then, or those people over there, somewhere else, are idolaters. We all know that. Those people back then in the pagan Roman Empire, those people in Thessalonica, they were idolaters. Those people over there in the jungles, those people in Africa, the people in Afghanistan, the people away from us, they're idolaters. We very seldom see idolatry as our problem, too, but it is. And it's not just our problem as Americans, it's our problem as Christians. That's why John can say, the Apostle John, at the end of his first letter, 1 John 5:21, he can say when he's writing to Christian people, little children, keep yourselves from idols. He's talking to us. Now, what kinds of idols do sophisticated, civilized, even Christian types like us worship? If I asked you, you could list them for me, couldn't you? We think of money. Matthew 6.24, Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. What about pleasure? In 2 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, Paul warns Timothy of people who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Pleasure can be an idol for you. What about your own appetites? In Philippians 3, 18 and 19, Paul warns us of people in the church who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. They are slaves to their appetites. They worship their own bellies. What about your desires? The things you want, the things that you think you need, your passions. In James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, James says that our desires, what we want, our passions, they wage war inside of us. And he says that explains every time we fight and argue and quarrel. But he says we have these desires that wage war in us. And in verse 4 of James 4, he calls it spiritual adultery adultery you adulteresses don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God just think about your desires think about the things you want the things that you think you need think about the desire to be accepted or popular or well liked how often have you said or done something or Not said or not done something. To make people think you were smarter or funnier or richer or more with it or more godly than you really were. Why? Because you wanted them to think highly of you. You craved respect and popularity and honor and a good reputation. Think about the desire to be right in an argument. This is a hard one for us, isn't it? Because after all, if you're right, you're right. Right? We crave this desire to win, to be right, to to win the argument. How many of us learn rich, solid, biblical truth just so that we can be right and have something over on those who aren't as well taught as we are, just so we can win the argument with them? The truth of God doesn't become something that leads us to God. It becomes something that leads us to ourselves. People who know and who can win. Or How often have you been ruled by your desire for peace? Many of us are ruled by this, aren't we? Completely ruled by your desire for peace. You'll do anything to keep the peace and to avoid conflict. You'll shade the truth or ignore problems or sins in people. You will change colors like a chameleon depending on who you're around and what's popular at the the moment. Because you can't stand the thought of rocking the boat. Or maybe you're ruled by the desire to control and to fix and to manipulate everything and everyone around you. And you just have to have your hands in everything. You have to be like the sovereign Lord of your world with every particle of the universe under your watchful eye. You have to micromanage every decision that your wife or your husband or your kids makes. You have to have a hand in everything and control everything and make everything turn out the way you want it to turn out. Maybe it's your desire for comfort. We could go on and on with this list, can't we? Think of the things you want. Your desire for a good grade, for a good score, for a good performance, or power, or peace and quiet at home, or, or... You know, you ladies with little babies, just the desire to have a good night's sleep once in a while. You know, to have a husband who does something other than sit back and and watch the ball game. Maybe it's the desire to veg out, the right to veg out at the end of a hard day. You kids, you have these desires to play with that toy that your brother or your sister is playing with, and you have to have it, and if you don't get it, you'll die. Whatever it is that you must have in order to be happy or or well adjusted or fulfilled, whatever it is, is an idol for you. And when our hearts are ruled by those desires, James says in James four that we are committing spiritual adultery, which means we have turned away from God and chased after other lovers that we thought would be more satisfying. Another way to see the reality of our idolatry is to think about the way that the Bible speaks of our responsibility towards God. The Psalms are filled with this kind of thing. Psalms are filled with these verbs that describe how we should relate to the true and living God. I'm just going to read some to you. Don't try to follow me. I'm going to give you the references so you're not tempted to write them down and try to follow me. Just listen. Listen to these words from the Psalms. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. I trust in you, O Lord. I say, You are my God. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. My soul makes us boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Whom have I in heaven but You? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides You. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Do you see all of these rich ways in which we are... Suppose we are commanded to react and relate towards this one true and living God. Serve Him. Rejoice in Him. Love Him. Take refuge in Him. Gaze upon Him. Inquire of Him. Seek Him. Be glad in Him. Trust in Him. Fear Him. Stand in awe of Him. Boast in Him. Delight in Him. Pant for Him. Thirst for Him. Hope in Him. Desire Him. Worship Him. Tremble before Him. And I'm sure that there are many, many more... But that is how we must always be responding to God and relating to God. What does that have to do with our idolatry? Well, think about it. When we don't respond to God in those ways, but when instead we relate in those ways to other things or other people, then we are idolaters. How many times have we turned from serving God to serving ourselves instead? goes without saying, doesn't it, that that's us. How many times have you turned from rejoicing in God and rejoiced in your own strength, your own power, your own wisdom, your own stuff, your own circumstances instead? Where have you found your joy? How many times have you turned from taking refuge in God? When do you need to take refuge? You need to take refuge when hard time comes, right? When stress comes, when attack comes, when opposition comes. Struggles come. Where do you run? Do you turn away from taking refuge in God and taking refuge in the TV set for comfort? Mental anesthesia? Or the ice cream carton? The shopping mall? The the pornography? The cigarette? The romance novel? The whiskey bottle? Where do you take refuge when trouble comes? How many times have you turned away from trusting in God and trusting what God has said and what God has done? And instead, trusting trusted your feelings about what God has said, trusted your experience of what God has done instead of trusting God. How many times have you turned away from panting and thirsting and desiring and delighting in God and tried to quench the thirst of your soul with money or with new clothes or with new toys or with new spouses or new experiences instead? You see, this is our problem. This misplaced worship is not just the problem of those people back then or those people over there. And it's not even just the problem of unbelievers who have absolutely rejected the Bible. We all know what it is to be ruled by something other than the true and living God. Not just in our old pre-Christian days, but now. It's our problem. It's the human problem. And all of our outward sins, the things that we tend to focus on, the things that we tend to want to address by means of New Year's resolutions, all of those outward problems find their source here in this idolatry of the heart. It's a, it's a problem too deep for New Year's resolutions even to begin to touch. Now, if that's the problem with you and me and with every person on the planet, then what's the solution? Is there hope for us? Is there hope for people like us who so often find ourselves either subtly or even blatantly turning away from God and turning towards idols? Is there hope that God can change the things we serve? Can He change the things we rejoice in and love? Can He change the things we take refuge in, the things we trust and hope in and thirst for and fear and worship, can He change the things that we want? Look again at 1 Thessalonians 1. Verses 9 and 10. Paul says that these people had a radical change of direction in terms of worship. They changed the things they hoped in. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. These people experienced a change that was radical and deep. Experience a change down on the level of what they worshipped and hoped in. No longer are they worshipping idols, now they're worshipping God. No longer are they serving idols, now they're serving God. No longer are they hoping in idols, now they're hoping in Jesus Christ. The whole orientation of their lives has changed. And now their wants, their, their hopes, their desires, their comforts are tied up with Jesus Christ. And they're waiting for Him. They're waiting for the Son of God from heaven. And they're taking refuge in the Son of God and they are delighting in Christ and everything that God has promised to be for them in Christ. They've experienced radical change at the level of their heart, not just on the surface. Not just on the level of willpower or education or habits or discipline. They've they've been changed at the deepest level. Their hopes, their fears, their desires, their motives. Now the biggest question we can ask of this passage is this then. How? How did this radical heart change happen? How did these people change on the inside from being enamored with false gods to being enamored with Christ? The answer is in verses 4 and 5. He says, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Do you see it here? There's three things. Three parts to this answer. The love of God, the action of God, and the gospel of God. The ultimate answer to the question, how in the world do idolaters become God-worshippers, is rooted in God. It all starts with God. We would have no hope at all if it weren't for God. You can't change the things you want on your own. You can't change the things you hope and trust and love on your own. Someone else has to come in and change that for you. And that's what it says. God loves sinners. He loves idolaters like these Thessalonians. He, he loves idolaters like us. He says you are loved by God. But He doesn't love idolaters because they're lovely. He loves them because His heart is great and magnanimous and generous and kind. He does not turn away in disgust from those who have turned away from him. He sets his heart on rebellious, defiant, disloyal idolaters, and he loves them and he is filled with compassion for them. And that love moves God to action. Because he loves idolaters like us, he freely, unconditionally chooses idolaters like us to be his people, not because he saw that they would turn to him. Not because He saw there was anything good in us. There is nothing good in us. He chose them simply because in the overflowing goodness and and greatness and graciousness of His heart, He wanted to. And the evidence that God has chosen certain people is how the Gospel comes to them. God sends the Gospel to them. He makes sure that they hear this message of Jesus Christ. This message of how Jesus Christ came and died in the place of people who deserved to die because of their own sin against the God who made them. And the gospel comes to idolaters like us not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. These, these people didn't just hear the word of God and yawn. They heard it and they were radically transformed by it. The power and the full conviction of the Holy Spirit flooded them and they became new creatures. And this transforming power of the Gospel produced fruit that overflowed from their changed hearts. That's how it works. Verse 3, they became people that characterized by a faith that worked and a love that labored and a hope in Jesus Christ that made them steadfast and patient. Verse 6, they became imitators of the apostles and of the Lord. And they received the Word with much affliction, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, they became an example to all the believers in in Macedonia and in Achaia. All around. Verse 8, they became people who sounded forth the Word of the Lord. Not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but their faith in God went forth everywhere. And as we've already seen in verses 9 and 10, they became people who turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. All of that beautiful fruit... All of that fruit that you want. All of that change that you want. The opposite of the stuff that you don't want is the fruit of the Gospel. It's the fruit of the good news of Jesus Christ. This Gospel is the power of God for the complete salvation of everyone who believes it. And when the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and applies it with power to the elect of God, then people are transformed and radically changed The good news of the cross that can transform you and me from idolaters to God-worshippers. And that good news is not just for people out there who haven't trusted Christ yet. This Gospel is for us. This Gospel is for believers. You and I need to hear this glorious, transforming, liberating truth every day. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you've got to preach it to yourself. Every day. Because even though we are already forgiven, those of us who have trusted Christ, even though we are already forgiven and cleansed and justified by faith alone and Christ alone, we still struggle with idols in our hearts. If you have looked inside of yourself this morning, as I've talked about these sins that we all struggle with, you know that they're there. You know that you struggle with these things. And we will be powerless and hopeless and in despair in the face of our sinful hearts once we catch a a glimpse of them. We will be in despair unless our lives are are constantly flooded with the message of the grace and the power and the kindness of God on our behalf. That That message is the only thing that will ever bring life and peace and joy and hope and comfort and obedience to anyone anywhere. Who trust in Christ? So, what have you done with the gospel? How has the gospel come to you? Has it come to you in word only? Have you heard the gospel preached to you over and over again? You young people who are here, you children, you've heard it in your home over and over again, but do you just yawn and ignore it every time? You teenagers. You're coming to the place where all the stuff you've heard all of your life, here it is. What are you going to do with it? Do you give the Gospel some kind of light, easy, shallow, surface, lip service? Because, because really, you don't think you're all that bad. Or has the Gospel come to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, you just sit there and go through the motions of Christianity in name only. You're nice. You're, you're with it. You've got it all together. Or is your life marked more and more, little by little, with a faith that really does work and a love that does labor and, and a hope in Jesus Christ that makes you patient and steadfast in the face of every trial that God brings to you? If that does not describe you, then you need to put your hope in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to stop thinking that you're okay. Stop trusting your own goodness. Stop trusting the fact that you look different or you act different or you talk different from other people. And start trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save you from the wrath of God. Because your sin is deeper than just what you look like or what you sound like or what you do. Maybe you need to stop thinking that you're too bad off for God to save. Some of you think that you think your sin is too big for him as if somehow God has met his match in you. And you need to humble yourself before the almighty mercy and sovereign grace of God who loves to show the might of his power by rescuing people who are as bad as we are and worse. And you who are already are true Christians you who already have experienced the true power of the Gospel in your your life, do you see the many ways that even as a Christian, your heart has been captured and ruled by what you love and hope in and seek and fear and worship and delight other than God? Are you able to acknowledge it? Or are you still trying to hide behind the shallow veneer of your own reputation and your own accomplishments and, and your track record and your achievement? Think about it. Are you so insecure about The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Are you so doubtful about the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been given to you if you've trusted Him? Are you so doubtful about that, so insecure about that, that you're afraid of admitting your idolatry for fear that God will reject you? The Gospel of Jesus Christ can bring you out of the dark. And it can enable you to own up to your own idolatry. It can enable you to see it and repent of it and change on a level that's deeper than just making willpower choices. It can empower you to be honest with yourself and honest with God. It can free you to find your constant forgiveness and help in Jesus Christ. Because if you're hoping in Christ and your sin of idolatry, your sin of loving and delighting in and trusting and fearing and taking refuge and obeying anything other than God. Your sin of idolatry has been atoned for by someone else. Jesus died for this sin. Jesus was the one whose heart was never unfaithful. The one who never turned away from God. The one who never worshipped idols. The one who always wanted the right thing all the time. He stood in your place and was punished in your place And God has forgiven you and He's going to help you to turn away from these idols and to turn back to God if you will come to Him and embrace Him by faith. Brothers and sisters, think about it. When you think of what God is like and what He has done, doesn't that make you want to turn to Him? Doesn't it make you want to turn to God from idols? These idols that always let you down and always lie to you and always end up leaving you with sawdust in your mouth. Don't you don't you want to turn to the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven? May God give every one of us grace to find our hope and our forgiveness and our life and our joy and our refuge and our power to change in the Gospel of Jesus Christ alone. This year can be a good year for us. It's not going to be a good year because you've, you've chosen to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do better or turn over a new leaf. It can be better for us if we get a glimpse of the power and the glory and the mercy of God and if we cast ourselves on Him. Let's pray together and ask God to help us. In the Gospel of Jesus Christ alone, this year can be a good year for us. It's not going to be a good year because you've, you've chosen to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do better, turn over a new leaf. It can be better for us if we get a glimpse of of the power and the glory and the mercy of God. And if we cast ourselves on Him. Let's pray together and ask God to help us.